Waiting on deck, but the game right now is at the plate. High fly ball into right field. She is gone. And in a year that has been so improbable, the impossible has happened. And now the only question was could he make around the base paths unassisted? I remember that guy, the show where we mine our memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players past and present. Hey there, folks, it's me, one of your hosts, hobbling up to the batter's box, James. Diaz with you slamming the brakes as I drive down the highway just beyond right field at Dodger Stadium. Uh, and we have a very special guest with us today. It is the baseball that was hit out of the stadium. Please introduce yourself. Yeah, you know what? It actually ended up somehow crossing the country all the way to rural New York, uh, where I am the very special guest, Xavier. Hey, man, never doubt Kirk Gibson. Kirk Gibson could hit a ball. From Los Angeles to Warwick, New York. That sounds believable. It's some Uncle Rico levels uh, right there. What I love about that play is, like, how many plays that we have the iconic call, right, that everybody remembers. And there's two iconic calls of that because, James, of course, you do the Vin Scully call. And then we also have the great Jack Buck with I don't believe what I just saw. It took me a while to pick which one to do. We've done so many Vin Scully that at this point I, I feel committed to the Vin Scully bit. But yeah, no, it's it's an excellent play. Excellent way to also get season five started. I'll remember that guy. And I think the best way to get this season premiere started is Xavier. If you'd go ahead and tell us who's making memories for you right now. Fuck England. They can't even beat us at their own sport. That's our fifth most popular sport. USA wins 0-0. USA. No, to be fair, though, this time, we should we, we should have won. England had an XG of 0.5. They had just scored six goals in the previous game, and they created absolutely nothing. Their first shot in the second half was in the 85th minute. That's after a halftime adjustment and coming out knowing you need to play better. They did not have a single shot for 40 minutes. USA, you know, same issue they've had pretty much all through qualifying is not scoring enough goals. And same issue they had against Wales where it's like they should have won. They should have you know, made more of it when they were on top. But overall, good performance. Probably should have scored to win it, but I'll take a nil-nil draw against England any day of the week. And it means that if USA beats Iran on Tuesday, they go through to the knockout stages which was the goal of this World Cup. And honestly, no matter what, they've been pretty good. Not great, but pretty good, which for USA in the World Cup is what you're kind of hoping for. And it's been great experience for the guys for 2026 when we will be going and celebrating and being crazy American fans watching the World Cup in America. So I, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about it. That's when soccer's coming home, baby. Yeah, take that, Brits. Soccer Twitter was fantastic because it was a mixture of USA, like fans of journalists saying, ah, it was really good. Wish we could have got the win. And British fans or just the most miserable fans fans just being like, this is 1776. This is not hyperbole. I saw multiple British journalists saying this is 1776. Some that said 1812 because of more of the draw, but Either way, they were very upset, British fan, uh, English fans. I shouldn't say British because 
I'm sure Scottish fans, Wales fans, Northern Ireland fans, they couldn't care. English fans yeah. were very taken aback because they had been talking a lot of shit leading up to this game. But England, 0 for 3 in chances to beat the USA in the World Cup, have never beat us. So maybe next time they won't they won't think uh, it's such a fait accompli that they're going to win. You know what the real problem was for England? They have that piece of shit from Tottenham up top. And if they had Callum Wilson starting, Callum Wilson would have bagged one today. Harry Kane, through two games of World Cup play, has zero shots on target. What are we doing? Jared Southgate, if you want to continue to be a moron, I welcome it. But you're doing my boy Callum dirty. But would you want to be in the position where you would have to be talking to us after England won one nothing because of a single Callum Wilson goal? It would be like, I would be the epitome of the like worst person you know just made a great point. Like, I would feel so torn by the contradictions within myself. It would be, for me, your Roberto Luongo winning the 2010 gold in Vancouver yes. uh, Olympic moment. No, 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 that is a perfect comparison. Um, but thankfully, Gareth Southgate is, um, I believe the proper term in British English is wanker. Uh, he's a wanker. <laughs> And, you know, because of that, England will never reach their heights. Funny story. I am currently wearing St. Patrick's Athletic shirt I got when I went to an Irish Premier League soccer match where they just kept chanting that the opposing coach was a wanker. So I will always associate the term wanker with this shirt because of what happened that day. Gareth Southgate is a wanker. Also, Harry Kane, I listened to his post-game interview. He sounds like he ate 50 cigarettes. I do not. I did not expect his voice to be that deep, but it's like, yeah, it was pretty pretty difficult. Oh, I, I think we controlled the game all right. I did not picture that out of you, Mr. Six Foot Two Blonde Poster Boy, but he sucks and he has a shady voice, so take that. I think part of that is because that famous London fog is actually largely made of cigarette smoke, if I remember correctly. <laughs> I got nothing better to do over there. So far. Good World Cup. We've seen a couple good upsets Saudi Arabia beating Argentina Japan beating Germany there's been a lot of goalish draws mixed in I think there's been six nil nil draws so far there was only one in all of 2018 and we're only halfway through the group stage well we're one game into the second day of the group stages but there's been some good matches mixed in and excited to see what happens over the next week and a half hopefully on Tuesday I'll be celebrating a USA win over Iran and a possible round of 16 matchup with the Netherlands. But enough soccer talk. Diaz, what's been making memories for you? So making memories for me. And unfortunately, this is a game that I was not able to watch as I was at Maryland Eastern Shore helping to produce their basketball doubleheader. Uh, Their women's team lost to Towson. The men beat Maris. That's what it was. I was, I was, I was watching those two basketball games, and, and I missed the basketball game that I thought I was going to get to see last March 10th. But unfortunately, Ben Simmons was a massive coward and did not play in that game. But Ben Simmons making his return to Philadelphia this past Tuesday, and the Philadelphia 76ers, without Joel Embiid, without Tyrese Maxey, And without James Harden, and with Tobias Harris being the highest paid player on the court, that's no different. He is just the highest paid player on the roster. But with that being the case, the Sixers end-to-end 
dominate the fully loaded and anti-Semitic Brooklyn Nets. <laughs> what a win. What an incredible win. We Philadelphia fans have been begging for Doc to play B-Ball Paul. Birth name Paul Reed, but if you know him, he has a B-Ball in his heart. He plays B-Ball. He has B-Ball in his soul. And he did nothing but play amazing B-Ball for that entire game. Ben Simmons got off to a bit of a hot start. But then Paul Reed came in, and with Paul Reed defending Ben Simmons, he made Ben Simmons look like Game 7 Ben Simmons. Which is to say, a terrible basketball player that has no reason to be on the court. <laughs> no, it was just it was a beautiful win. Ben got his stats. I just want to say, what a fucking asshole hitting the Jordan Shrug for making two free throws in a row. Like, it's some impressive thing that we should be in awe. You as a professional basketball player in your fifth season in the league made two unguarded shots in a row from 12 feet away. What an impressive thing, Ben. But we get the comeuppance in the second half when, in his greatest contribution to the welfare of the city of Philadelphia ever, he helped to end hunger in the city by gifting us all with a five-piece chicken nugget from Chick-fil-A by courtesy of his missed two free throws in the second half. Zero points in the fourth quarter for Ben on zero shot attempts because as much as he wants to say that he's different and as much as the media will have you believe that this is a, a redemption arc, it's not. He is who he is, just as he said after that Game 7. It is what it is. And what he is is a player that will never achieve any meaningful success in the <laughs> National Basketball Association, especially when he is guarded by full name basketball Paul Reed. God bless the hospital Sixers, and God bless Doc Rivers for just playing the guy that we have seen be good at basketball. It is his name, and he got to do it. Trust the process. Speaking of the hospital Sixers, the one thing that I'd like to add to this, if you ever have major surgery on your clavicle and surrounding ligaments, I cannot possibly recommend enough during the immediate recovery period getting to watch the Brooklyn Nets get whomped by the hospital 76ers lineup it was an absolute delight and has truly, truly contributed to my current pretty go okay status. I was going to say, it's just like a, it's a very specific reference you're pulling there, James. I know we haven't tuned in the, the listeners at home yet, but you know, what, what an what a incredibly specific scenario you've painted for us. Just think about Kirk Gibson, you know. <laughs> of course, while, while we're on the injury vein. Well, as Kirk so bravely made the 360-foot trip around the base paths, let's come 360 full circle back to you, my friend. And if you could tell us who's making memories for you. There's a lot of stuff going on this week. Shout out to Winston. Yesterday, he became the first ever French Bulldog to win the Westminster Dog Show. Shout out to Amy Schneider for completing an insanely good season of Jeopardy with her winning the Tournament of Champions. However, the person I want to focus on, it's not someone having a career highlight. It's someone bringing their career to an end. Are you too familiar with NFL linebacker Blake Martinez? Yes, of course. Yeah, I'm sorry. I should say former NFL linebacker Blake Martinez. Blake Martinez is no longer going to be playing in the NFL. He did retire this past weekend. And part of that is because you know, he's had an injury history. We've seen this before with Calvin Johnson, Andrew Luck, Luke Keekley. Who's the guy on the 49ers that retired really early? Chris Borland. Chris Borland. Chris Borland. Chris Borland. Yes. Blake Martinez has also had a terrible injury, much like them. He did tear his ACL at one point by playing with the New York football giants. He's having a pretty okay year at the Las Vegas Raiders. However, 
an important thing if you're going to retire is to make sure that you've got good post-retirement assets. And I think Blake Martinez got a really good proof of concept, apparently, of that last month. Do you guys know what Blake Martinez just made a lot of money doing last month before retiring? Hopefully not crypto. Not crypto. Slightly less dumb than crypto because it's a real thing. Blake Martinez, uh, a used car salesman. Used car salesman, very, very close. Add one more letter to that and you get card. Blake Martinez last <laughs> month sold an incredibly rare Pokemon card for $672,000. That is more than his rookie year contract with the Green Bay Packers. It was a Pokemon Illustrator card still in the original Japanese printing. 9.5 gem mint quality. It's very high. One of these cards was actually sold to Logan Paul earlier this year with a perfect 10.0 gem mint quality. Uh, he wore it during WrestleMania around his neck. That one he sold for $5 million. So it's a big difference, that 0.5. But Blake Martinez has other Pokemon cards in addition to this big one. And so he knows that he's now got this nest egg to start retiring with. And I'm just very happy for Blake Martinez to spend his retirement safe, healthy, away from the sport, and just trying to catch them all. Aren't we all? I would love to figure out how much he spent initially to get that, or if he just happened to have it from when he was a kid. You know, I'm sitting in my parents' house right now, and there is a box that I can see right now that has Digimon, Pokemon, and baseball cards in it. The top card was a Bernie Williams Topps 50th celebration card, and then a whole bunch of Digimon cards. I, I would love it if just one of those happened to be worth $600,000, but I doubt it. This one was probably like a collector's enemy got previously. Again, this was the fully Japanese one. It was a special effect card. It's an image of a Pikachu. It is holographic. And the Pikachu's like painting and illustrating. It's called the Illustrator card. Uh, he had called it the Swirlustrator because there's a particular swirl in the printing that denotes this particular print run from later print runs. A very pretty thing. It's better than crypto because, again, at least you can hold the card in your hand. It is fungible. It, it is, is fungible, it was, as they say. Yes, you could destroy it. It is quite fungible. <laughs> but uh, that's not his problem anymore. He's just $672,000 richer. Good for you, Blake Martinez. What an awesome side hobby to just immediately parlay your passions into. The sale happened last month. He didn't officially retire till this last weekend. So I had heard about this a while ago. I was like, oh, that's pretty funny that he would like do this in the middle of the season. But apparently this is the thing that he was doing just to wait and prove whether or not he could now get away with doing this as his post-career. Yeah, he had to wait until the check cleared. When, when it's a sum like that, it takes a little bit to come through there the wire. So. There we go. Concept. But congratulations to you, Blake Martinez. And Diaz, a belated congratulations once again to you because last when we all met, you were our most successful litigant, which means as we kick off this fifth season of our increasingly illustrious show, you are the one that has helped us select a topic for what we're going to discuss today. Yeah, so, so we can kind of tie this back to the Holly McPeak story, where Holly McPeak was one of the greatest of all time in her sport, but she just wasn't great enough, and she couldn't break through into that first pair to be able to compete for a gold medal. And th that spoke to me. So the topic that I wanted to come up with for this week was bridesmaid guys. We've all heard the phrase, you know, always a bridesmaid, never a bride. What we're looking for this week is guys that have come so close 
to reaching the pinnacle of their sport, the pinnacle of their competitions, but we're never able to quite get through. Um, and with that in mind, I was immediately struck by one of my favorite Philadelphia Eagles uh, when I was growing up. This is a guy that was drafted by the Houston Oilers, actually. He would then go on to be the teammate of Hall of Guy inductee, Dr. Kevin Dyson, when they did lose that Super Bowl to the L.A. Rams. He and Javon Kurse would eventually come over to Philadelphia. Uh, this guy came over a couple years before Javon Kurse, where he proudly donned the number 69 for a near decade for the Philadelphia Eagles. Ooh, that's like, incredibly it, nice times 10. Incredibly nice. Uh, and it was, it was actually nine seasons. Uh, that he played with the Philadelphia Eagles. So not quite the full 10, but number 69, drafted in 96 by the Houston Oilers before moving on to the Philadelphia Eagles, ultimately ending out his career with the San Diego Chargers. I'm talking about the father of current NFL lineman, John Runyon Jr., John Runyon. (laughs) And again, he's just John Runyon. He does not go by John Runyon Sr. anywhere. He just goes as John Runyon. So John Daniel Runyon, born the same day as yours truly, actually, November 27th, uh, just 19 years earlier in 1973, in the town known most for its incredibly clean drinking water and incredibly good business practices by local businesses, Flint, Michigan. Oh, God. So he's born there, and he was born to a father who, if I was to say a random person in Michigan, what would you guess that their father did? Made cars. His father was an employee at General Motors. (laughs) Now, John Runyon, of course, as I've already alluded, goes on to to have a pretty successful NFL career, but he was quite the athlete in his high school days. Uh, So competing at Flint, he set the middle school Michigan record in the shot put while competing for Carmen Ainsworth Middle School with a heave of 50 feet, 7 inches. Again, that is as a middle schooler. He is putting this shot about 16, 17 yards down the field. Pretty absurd. He would then go on to be a two-time Michigan High School Athletic Association shot put state champion at Carmen Ainsworth High School. In 1991, his junior year, he would launch that baby 57 feet, 6 inches, and he would add nearly two whole feet to his shot put by the time he won the state championship the next year with 59 feet and 5 inches. Now, his prowess outside the gridiron was not just limited to the shot put. He was actually a great basketball player as well. Standing at 6 feet 7 inches tall, he was second team All-State in Michigan his senior year as a center. Michigan, obviously... It was a pretty good basketball scene. It's just funny to me that he's clearly not a quarterback. So he's not throwing there. And he's the center in the basketball team. So presumably he's not doing a whole lot of shooting there. And then he's also a state champion at shot put. The way that that could cross over with the other sports. Well, if you think about it, the shot put, it's, it's getting the torque. And then it's also your arm strength. So if you think about it, the way you're like pushing forward with the shot put is the same way that as an offensive lineman, you're getting low and you're extending up with your arms. So some crossover there. And who knows, maybe much like uh, fellow Eagles right tackle Lane Johnson. Uh, Lane Johnson was a quarterback in college to start with. Maybe that's a path running could have gone down. 
But that's not the path he went down. And the other path he didn't go down was basketball. So, I mean, as I mentioned, second team All-State as a basketball center, he had a scholarship offer to go play full-time for Michigan State and Tom Izzo. He declined this, though, and turned his back not just on basketball, but also on Michigan State to go play for the Michigan Wolverines. Take that, Michigan State. While at Michigan, Runyon established himself as one of the best offensive linemen in the Big Ten. Obviously a conference known for having those big hog mollies up front, right? He was an all-Big Ten selection first team uh, his senior year in 1995 where a young quarterback uh, from California by the name of Tom Brady was taking his redshirt season. So one brief year of crossover there between Mr. Runyon and Mr. Brady. Boo, Tom Brady, boo. Boo, Tom Brady. Are you telling this to like try and endear me to Runyon? Because now you've just tainted him the tiniest bit. Well, we'll get to it again at the end. John Runyon is a bit of an asshole. Um, (laughs) But in good ways, I think, uh, for the most part. We don't hate all assholes. That's true. But anyway, so, you know, he's a, he's a first-team All-Big Ten selection. He goes to the Combine, and uh, his numbers are, like, fine. They're not great. As an offensive lineman, he runs a 5'3", 4'40". Got about a 24-and-a-half-inch vertical, 8'7", inches on the broad jump, and he's able to crank out 25 reps on the bench at 225. All good numbers, but certainly not an athletic freak by any means. And his draft position would reflect this. So he's drafted in the fourth round of the 1996 draft, 109th overall, by the Houston Oilers. Starts out as a backup, but very quickly is kind of proving his worth, proving that he deserves more opportunity. And by the sixth game of his rookie season, he established himself as the starting right tackle for the Oilers then. The team then moves to Tennessee, where they still are the Oilers for the first two seasons. Uh, they had a bit of an That's identity. That's a weird crossover when they did that. Isn't that dumb? I'd say it's the second dumbest. Utah Jazz remains the dumbest. It's the whitest place in the entire country, and you have a team named after Jazz. But other than I kind that, of like it now, ironically, in that it's like the, the least Mormon thing. It's silly, right? At least the, the Tennessee football franchise realized the error of their ways, uh, because... Just in time for the 1999 season, they do become the Tennessee Titans. And uh, for that 1999 season, that is, of course, the year that the Titans have the Music City Miracle. John Runyon was not on the field for the play. He had to make the, the throw that Frank Wycheck made to Kevin Dyson. Probably not going to go as well. Dr. Kevin Dyson. Dr. Kevin Dyson, of course. Please forgive How me, doctor. Please forgive me, doctor. But John Runyon still starts on that team. And uh, he would actually be on the field for that one-yard short play for Dr. Kevin Dyson. So already we have our first bridesmaid moment, not quite able to break through. And then after the 99 season, his four-year rookie contract is up. So he goes in the free agency and he joins the Philadelphia Eagles on a contract that in modern terms doesn't seem too crazy. Six years, $30 million. But it's important to note, at the time, it made him the highest-paid offensive lineman in NFL history. Kudos to the Eagles for shelling that much out at that time. You guys have respected offensive line play, I think, historically. Well, that was always um, Andy Reid's thing. Andy Reid, obviously, is a big guy himself. So his whole ethos with football is dominate the line of scrimmage and figure out the rest later. 
I'd say it's worked pretty well for him. Uh, it worked pretty well for the Eagles, and obviously it worked pretty well for John Runyon. Runyon's coming off of uh, being named second-team All-Pro in 99, which, incredibly enough, is the only time he ever made any All-Pro team. He would go on to make a Pro Bowl with the Philadelphia Eagles in 2002. That would be the only Pro Bowl he ever made. So, despite being I the highest... this is a contract that you guys just loved. Well, here's the thing. John Runyon was fucking beloved in Philadelphia. Like, so much. There's one clip that I'll always remember. Michael Strahan, of course. Everybody knows Michael Strahan. Great defensive end for the New York Giants. Had the sack record kind of bullshit because Brett Favre just kind of like laid down. Clearly the least ethical thing that Brett Favre ever did was laying down so that Strahan could get that sack. But somebody that didn't lay down for Michael Strahan was John Runyon. Uh, And there's a great clip out there. Michael Strahan goes to try to do like a, a spin move. And he's, like, slightly off balance, and Runyon just, like, flattens him. Arm chop to the chest, knocks him down. And then Runyon, being a good sport, reaches his hand down to help Strahan up, pulls him up to his feet, and the second he gets back to his feet, pushes him right back down to the ground again. I just love the encapsulation of, like, yes, I am a good sport, but I'm also going to fuck you up. Um, Quite good of a sport, you can say, in that, but I still enjoy the story. Right. Well, I mean, it's a great story. And, you know, stories like that are illustrative of the fact that, you know, in 2006, Sports Illustrated did a article on who they thought were the dirtiest players in football. John Runyon was rated the second dirtiest player in all of football at the time. Sean Merriman, then linebacker for the Bills, stated that, quote, John Runyon was one of the dirtiest players I've ever been against in my whole entire life. He was real good at being dirty. When asked about this, Runyon did not deny the charges. And he criticized the state of the game instead. That's the way the game's supposed to be played. I think they've tried to change that over the years. It's turned into a basketball game out there. Taking a shot at basketball. As a former basketball guy. It's it's incredible. But that is the whole point of basketball, right? To take shots at things. Another moment that I'm sure both of you will remember is uh, maybe the most infamous play in fantasy football history. On Championship Sunday of 2007, the Eagles were underdogs going into Dallas. And while they were up 10-3, Brian Westbrook catches a screen pass. And in the huddle beforehand, John Runyon said to Westbrook, hey, if you break free and you get the first down, get down. And of course, everybody remembers Westbrook with the end zone right ahead of him, lays down on the one-yard line. And runs the clock down so that the Eagles can just knee it out and get the win that way. That was John Runyon's idea. So, fantasy football owners out there, if Brian Westbrook kneeling on the one cost you your title, you can send an invoice to John Runyon because it's his <laughs> fault. So, John Runyon also, I mentioned that screen pass to Westbrook. That was maybe the most effective play that the Eagles had. Because you would always, they'd, they'd run it to the right side, and then you would have Jamal Jackson and John Runyon just leading the way. And, you know, good luck. A 2008 players poll revealed that getting blocked by John Runyon on a screen pass was rated the scariest thing in the NFL. Oh, God. So we have second dirtiest player. First scariest incident is when he gets downfield blocking on a screen. And one thing that, you also need to commend John Runyon for is his absolute unquestionable 
resolve and toughness. I remember stories about John Runyon when he was with the Eagles, especially towards the end of his career. He had like pretty serious back problems to the extent that he would not lay down at night to sleep. He found a way to be able to stand and sleep because that was less pressure on his back. These are the lengths that he went to to play. He would not miss a game for any reason to the extent that he holds the record for most consecutive games started by an offensive lineman with 190 consecutive starts. It's dangerous for your long-term health, but I appreciate the commitment. Also flabbergasted, the answer to that is in Joe Thomas, and I'm embarrassed that I would have gotten it wrong if you'd asked me to guess. Well, Joe Thomas what, retired after, I think, 10 seasons, right? Sure, yeah, I guess he didn't have the chance. So that would have been 160 games. I think Joe Thomas started every game he ever played, though. In addition to that, Runyon also started each of the 18 playoff games that his teams appeared in during the streak, which brings it to an effective 208. After the 2008 season, which was kind of the uh, swan song for, for the Eagles of my youth, that was the year that they would beat the Cowboys 44-6. to had, Saw Jim Johnson as the defensive coordinator, rest in peace. Still had John running at right tackle, still had McNabb at quarterback, all those things going on. 2008 was the, the last ride, really, for that team. Further accentuated by the fact that following that postseason run on January 28th, Runyon had a microfracture surgery on his right knee. The Eagles wanted to bring him back. He was uh, back in for a tryout on September 10th, uh, but he did not sign a contract. He would sign with the San Diego Chargers. He played five games for them before realizing that his body simply is not going to respond anymore. Just not going to work. And he ultimately retires. Which leads us to part two of the John Runyon story. Now, John Runyon, as I noted earlier, is a bit of an asshole. He chose to get into politics and ran for the U.S. House of Representatives in New Jersey's District 3, where he ran as a Republican against the Democratic incumbent John Adler. This was not a problem for Runyon because while he played for the Eagles, he lived in Mount Laurel, just across the bridge. He earned the endorsement of the Ocean County Republicans, and on June 8th, he secures the Republican nomination. He goes on to win the election against Adler in November of that year, 50 to 47%. He became the first challenger to unseat an incumbent New Jersey congressman in 12 years with his victory. It had been since 1998 that an incumbent lost the election. He won the aforementioned Ocean County by 20,000 votes in an election that he won by 6,000 votes. So you do the math without solidly Republican Ocean <laughs> County, he's not going to get that win. So we're, we're just looking at uh, simple local politics here. He became the fourth former NFL player to be elected to Congress. Would either of you like to guess any of the other three? Did Tommy Tuberville ever play? Tommy Tuberville never played, no. Okay. No, I don't think I can name anyone then. Hopefully not Herschel Walker, official RTG stance. Hopefully not Herschel Walker. Put it on my gravestone. And the other three, just to clean it up for you. Jack Kemp, Keith Schuler, and Steve Largent. 
I did actually know about Heath Schuler because I believe it was either North Carolina or Tennessee, one of those. Heath Schuler was North Carolina, and uh, he is also the only Democrat of that bunch. Uh, the other he three. He was uh, the guy before Peyton Manning at, at, at Tennessee, at the University of Tennessee. House of Representatives, of course, every two years you have an election. In 2012, he's going up against Adler again. Uh, so Adler is back for more. He wants blood. He wants his seat back. The only problem is that John Adler dies suddenly in April oh, of 2001. No, it, it is horrible. And uh, in, in an attempt to carry on her husband's legacy, Shelley Adler, the widow of John Adler, would run in his stead. Going to be a very tough uphill campaign for her at that point, already going against Runyon as the incumbent. Uh, and this election, not particularly close. Runyon does win 54 to 45% this time. Some key legislation that John Runyon would sponsor and talk about in his time. Uh, first of all, he did vote with the Republican Party 92% of the time, so a very large amount of the time. He sponsored votes to support the payroll tax cut, a balanced budget amendment. He also defunded NPR. We don't like that. But what we do like is that he was a sponsor for H.R. 2217 which was to increase the staffing for adequate fire and emergency response grants within the FEMA system. So we respect that. He is a man of small government, but he is a man that recognizes government should exist in some form. Everybody gets one. He gets one. Well, he actually, so he gets two because he will also vote to amend the Fish and Wildlife Act of 1956 to reauthorize the volunteer programs and community partnerships for the benefit of national wildlife refuges. So almost in a classical, we weren't always evil Republican sense, you know, back when they supported like national parks and shit, John Runyon did support that. And also, you know, I mentioned that John Runyon believes that government should exist and does serve a purpose. He would disavow himself from the Republican Party and not seek re-election for a third term after the 2012 government shutdown, which he thought was, to put it in layman's terms, bullshit. By the Republicans said, if we're not even going to attempt to do our jobs, we're not even going to attempt to govern, why would I want to work with these people? I'm out. So at that point, John Runyon does bow out of, of serving in Congress. Today, as mentioned in his introduction, John Runyon serves as the father of John Runyon Jr. <laughs> he serves as the father? It's, it is a duty. It is a responsibility. Uh, John Runyon Jr., <laughs> he's a starting offensive lineman for the Packers. So the Runyon bloodline remains strong. And he once appeared as a construction worker alongside other Philadelphia Eagles in an episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Uh, if you remember the season four episode, America's Next Top Patty's Billboard Model Contest. John Runyon gets a cameo as a construction worker. And if you're looking to maybe catch up with John today, all you need to do is get into the local Philadelphia area and uh, call yourself an Uber because there may be a chance that your driver will be a 6'7", former 69-wearing gentleman. A name of John. Yes, John Runyon, in his spare time, serves as an Uber driver in Philadelphia. Sure. So, you never, so you never know. 
Man, pension not doing well for him, I guess. And and he's he got, actually doesn't he get yeah the NFL and the Congress pension. He gets I both of those pensions. Bo- he just has to be just be boredom at that point. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just an easy way to make some spare money if you're not doing anything else. Possibly some conservative values to unsuspecting passengers. Quite possibly, but I mean, again, like I always want to say, like if you folks have been listening this long and you don't understand the political leanings of the three of us, I don't know what you've been listening to. I do not agree with John Runyon's politics. However, I can at least respect and admire that he was willing to say bullshit when the Republican Party went fully overboard on all of its bullshit. He seems like he would tell Matt Burke and Aubrey Huff to fuck off. And with this being the third week that we have brought up former athletes from our cities that have turned to politics, that being the the through line at least gives him a little bit more decency, I can agree. Right. He, he, he got out before it went fully off the rails. And maybe perhaps John was a bit naive in his small government politics. But at any rate, one thing he was not naive about was his pure assholery on the football field, doing whatever it took to be a great teammate to his team and to be a thorn in the collective ass of the opponents. Twice getting so close to winning the Super Bowl. I don't even know if I mentioned the 04 Super Bowl because I'm just so traumatized by it. But yeah, we lost the Eagles Super Bowl 2004. Patriots, we lost that. Hey, um, if, you had, if you had killed baby Tom Brady when he had the chance, that could have been avoided. He could have. It's it's very much, that is, that is our baby, that is our baby Hitler conundrum on this podcast. Baby Brady. And if we, if we had killed him, not only would the Eagles have won Super Bowl 39, we also would not have this disaster of a film known as 80 for Brady. So, you know, society would be a better place, but John Runyon, misguided as he may be, at some times, is always trying to do right by his teammates, is trying to do right by his constituents, and ultimately, I believe, is a guy of the people, despite his shortcomings. So, John Daniel Runyon, happy early 49th birthday. I will be celebrating happy my 30th birthday. belated birthday when you all hear this for him. Happy belated as you all listen to this. Happy early as we record this. And yeah, John, maybe uh, maybe I'll catch you at Poppin' Bottles somewhere in Philadelphia. Maybe you will be the Uber driver who gets me home safely after I pop bottles for my 30th. And we can uh, reminisce on how fucking old we are together. But John Runyon, number 69 in your programs, number one in your hearts, and potentially a for guy. that line this entire time. <laughs> I was, I, I was supposed to open with it, and then when I didn't, I had to say it. No, it was an excellent closer. Thank you. Thank you. John Runyon, for your consideration. Well, that's one guy. It's an impressive one, Diaz. It's, it's rare that you have a field where not being the ultimate winner still gets recognition. But one place that you can always find that at is the Olympics. I've always found this fascinating about the Olympics, how much we talk about like total medal count versus gold medal count leads to a lot of silliness. Like when the U S just kept insisting on finding ways to put us ahead of China in say the 2008 games. Oh, but look at all those silver and bronze. It also leads to interesting historical nuggets. Like one of the most decorated female Olympians, certainly in track and field, as well as all sports in sports history. And that is a Jamaican runner by the name of Merlene Otti. Are you familiar? Merlin Ati. I Ati yeah. looked that up because uh, I don't. Well, here, let me save you some time by looking you up and just tell you her whole story. Please, please. So Merlene Joyce Ati, that's how she's born, 
when she is born to parents Hubert and Joan Oddie in Jamaica. It's in the parish of Hanover, which is like their states, in the small town of Cold Spring on May 10th, 1960. And like many people who are athletically inclined in Jamaica, she takes up running. Her mother is the big force from her parents in getting her into this. She actually buys her a manual very early on in her life. I don't know exactly how much of a difference a track and field manual would make, but I guess that's just something that I don't understand as a, as a simple plebeian. But another big crystallizing moment for her, the 1976 Olympics. She's 16, and there is a Jamaican runner, a man by the name of Donald Quarry, who's just killing it for Jamaica. Gets the silver in the 100 meter, gold in the 200 meter, and she's able to listen to this on the radio you know, while she's doing her barefoot races at school during the daytime. She's noted she very specifically ran barefoot this whole time. So it's a real kind of bootstrap story. Track on the radio is just like fascinating to me because especially in an event that is like that short as the 100 or the 200, like at least even in like a mile race or even a 400, there's enough time to paint a picture. But like you can do it with horse racing, but a hundred meter dash. 100 meters like and they're running and uh it looks like maybe this person and uh okay it's over that's it's i mean quite literally you have about a 10 second window to get all your commentary in yeah well despite the difficulty of medium it does captivate her and so she follows in donald corey's footsteps she as a jamaican moves to the united states and goes to the same school as he did big track and field powerhouse the university of nebraska she's gonna go be a corn husker what? <laughs> of course, noted, noted track excellence. Well, we joke, but this was not a joke at the time. By any chance, you happen to know the 1979 Nebraska women's track and field coach. See, this is going to be a name that I will know the way that it's, you it's a, it to me. I'll tell you this. It's a last name you will know. It's Carol Frost, who is the mother <laughs> of Nebraska championship winning coach in 1997, Scott Frost. What tangled webs we husk. Well, and a quick aside for Carol Frost. She was so good at track when she was in college that she won medals for the United States in the Olympics, despite the fact that at the time, the University of Nebraska did not have a women's track and field team. So did she just like train with the men? Was just or? training independently, qualified for the Olympics and won a couple medals. And then she is a big part of why this program gets started at the University of Nebraska following that. And she gets this star recruit, Merlene Adi. Carol will get quickly replaced by Gary Pepin, who is the next coach. He actually takes over both teams and then coaches them until earlier this year in 2022. The next person that coaches a women's track and field team will only be the second person since Carol Frost to have coached a women's track and field team at University of Nebraska. Remarkable. Yeah, but enough about the Huskers. We want to focus in on one specific Husker, and that's Merlene Adi who has a phenomenal five-year career. She does do the full five years there up until 1984. During that time, 14 national titles, 24 All-America records, most ever by Cornhusker student-athlete. She is part of the school winning titles from 82 through 84, the three-peat. And she still, to this day, holds the indoor 55 and 200-meter records and the outdoor 100 and 200-meter records for the school, University of Nebraska. That is... A lot of records. Is that four records? That's that four that she still holds for the school to this day. Yeah, it's an illustrious college career. 
But of course, we're talking about people who were the bridesmaids and never the brides. If we were talking about college sports, I'd be barking up the wrong tree. However, for the first time, we approach an Olympics where she is eligible. The 1980 Moscow Olympics. We're very familiar with this one. It comes up a lot in our show. It's been the source of a lot of Dash dreams. Good news is, Jamaica does not boycott the 1980 Olympics. Merle Nadi does get to go compete while in college at the 1980 Moscow Summer Olympics. And because it's mostly East German, Soviet, and then just the other countries that didn't feel like boycotting, uh, she ends up getting a bronze. Just really well. Comes in third uh, by just about 0.17 seconds to someone who was setting an Olympic record for East Germany at the time. And you will love this. This is a very specific record. She is the very first female English-speaking Caribbean Olympic medalist. On a Tuesday. On a Tuesday during a day game with clear skies. And 30% or less humidity. (laughs) This gives her, in 1980, her second straight Jamaican Sportswoman of the Year honor. She had won it the year before due to a very good performance at the Pan American Games. But now she's hit the Olympics and she goes back to Nebraska, finishes off that college career. And at the end of that college career, it's time for yet another Olympics, 1984. This time, she is going to come as a graduate of the University of Nebraska. Just for what it's worth, she graduates with a Bachelor in Liberal Arts. She comes to the Los Angeles Olympics. She's the only woman to make the podium in both the 100 and 200 meter sprints. However, in both of those, she is defeated by two different pairs of Americans, both of them with the gold medalist setting Olympic records, as they did when she came in third previously. So she's continuing to rack up these bronze wins, but unfortunately she keeps showing up on other people's best days. Now, one thing I'll clarify, in some international competitions, she is still winning gold. She gets gold, for instance, at the 1982 Commonwealth Games before those 1984 Olympics. Between 84 and 87, though, She's going to temporarily not compete as Merlene Audie. She's going to compete as Merlene Audie Page because she marries an American sprinter, Nat Page. She doesn't win any medals as Merlene Audie Page, but she does add two more Jamaican Sportswoman of the Year honors. So she's now got those in multiple names, going on five in the last six years now. And all of this leads up to her third crack at Olympic gold, 1988. We are going to the Seoul Olympics. In the 200 meter, by 0.04 seconds, she finishes fourth. Doesn't even make the podium this time. And unfortunately, injuries that she sustains during the 100 meter runnings, she gets a did not finish in the semis. Her Olympic count following 1988, after eight years, still just the three bronze. And this year, she doesn't even get Jamaican Sportswoman of the Year. Grace Jackson, who took the silver in the 200 meters, she does get it. She'll, She'll get a few more of those, don't worry. 1988, not the high point that you want to end with. So she starts looking towards the 1992 Olympics, and the next four years represent one of the strongest stretches of her entire career. She is going to, if you'll pardon my joke, really kind of hit her stride. (laughs) (laughs) She returns to the Commonwealth Games for the first time in a while in 1990. It's held in Auckland. Gets two gold medals there, both for signature events, the 100 and 200 meter. She has really good showings at the 1989 and 1991 World Indoor Champions. Gets the gold of the 200 meter and uh, finishes on the podium for both of them in the 100. Still adding bronzes and silvers as well to the count. In 1991, the Jamaican women's 4x100 relay team wins gold at the 1991 Tokyo World Championships. 
This is her first ever official gold at a world championships match, not Commonwealth, not Pan American, not World Indoor. And it is all ready for her to go to Barcelona in 1992 and get this Olympic gold monkey off her back. She's going to go there with another up-and-coming Jamaican sprinter. This is now 12 years since she started, so there's been continuous rotation of her teammates. And now Juliet Cuthbert is the other Jamaican sprinter with her. They both make it to the finals for both the 100 and 200 meters. I'll spoil this for you. Cuthbert gets silver in both. In the 200, Adi again, unfortunately, finishes with a bronze. But in the 100 meter, in a race where from first to fifth place, it is only divided by 0.06 seconds, going from 10.82 to 10.88. She is unfortunately the fifth place. She only adds the one more bronze here in 1992. Another disappointing showing by her, which means that Juliet Cuthbert gets her very first Jamaican Sportswoman of the Year. Adi settles for her fourth Olympic bronze, though I should mention in the three intervening years prior to this Olympics, she had one Jamaican Sportswoman in all of those three years. So she does now have 10 of them, which has already set the record for most by anyone in the country. A collective decade of being the best woman at athletics in your country. Yep. And, you know, you could say, okay, she is still one of the most decorated Jamaican athletes of all time. She has been to four different Olympics now. And as we've said, there's been this turnover. Her teammates are changing. A new generation's ushering in. She's having a really good, like, late career here in everything but the Olympics. This time in between rounds, in 93 and 95, she's again in the finals for the World Championships in the 200 meter. Wins gold in both of those. 95 is actually in Barcelona for the World Indoor Championships. And this time in Barcelona, she takes care of business. She actually, at the 60-meter dash in those World Indoor Championships, sets what is still the world record. And 95, that is her 13th Jamaican Sportswoman of the Year honor in the last 17 years. I hope they just renamed it after this to just the... Her name, Sportswoman of the Year, because at that point, you just deserve it. It's like you retire a trophy because it's literally just her. There are two people that have gotten multiple ones in the time that she's won this, and she's still managed to make them look like footnotes because she's gotten 13 in the last 17. What more could you possibly need to check off except for that one Olympic gold? And so we're going to get ready for the 1996 Olympics. Let up! In the 200, at the age of 36, she beats Juliet Cuthbert, who makes it to the finals with her. Ultimately, though, she does end up with the silver in that 200 meter behind French athlete Marie-José Perec. That's okay, because while the 200 had been her signature earlier, she's shifted a little bit more towards the 100. This is really the one where she thinks she has a chance this time. And all eyes are on her and American Gail Devers. In 95, in the World Championship, they finished one and two. Gail Devers in that race won by one one-thousandth of a second. That's disgusting. It's disgusting, and it's going to get grosser as they meet in the Olympics. Oh, no. Both of their times, when they finish, read 10.94. They are again divided by thousandths of a second for the second year in a row on the sport's biggest stage. When they check, it's a slightly bigger margin this time. It's five thousandths of a second by which Gail Devers again just barely edges out our girl Merlene Adi. 
So now she ends the 1996 Olympics with one more bronze medal because the four by 100 meter relay team that she was anchoring does get the bronze. She has five bronze medals, two silver, still zero gold. If you were waiting for a decline, 2000 is when that sort of starts to finally happen. The only medal that she wins in the next four years leading up to the 2000 Olympics is a 200 meter bronze in 1997. Part of that is because in 1999, everyone started to prep for Olympic qualifying. She actually gets pinged for a urine sample. In Lucerne, Switzerland, she tests positive for anabolic steroid nadrolone. She's banned from that year's world championships. She's banned from Olympic qualifying. And she protests, says it's a total mistake. Takes it all the way to our good friends at the Court of Arbitration of Sport. We love bringing them up. Switzerland. And uh, yeah, because of mismanaged protocols, neutral ass court of arbitration of sport players actually know we're going to have to drop everything she could participate in the olympic qualifiers but she hasn't really been able to train properly for this whole year leading up to it and so she misses qualification by 0.03 seconds she finishes fourth in the qualifiers Ah. it's good enough to still make the relay team for the 2000 olympics so she's already going to come onto the athens olympics which i'll remind you will be her sixth olympics but She talks to the Jamaican Amateur Athletic Association because they have a bit of a loophole. They have the discretion and have used it in the past prior to this moment to, if they're extenuating circumstances, substitute out the third qualified person for someone that might have otherwise been qualified, if not for extenuating circumstances. (laughs) She pushes for this a little bit and they report on a quote-unquote injury to Peter Gay Dowdy, who's the third-place finisher, who's like a, another young, up-and-coming, new generation of sprinter, and Merlene Adi is given her spot in the qualifying. And the like other Jamaican athletes do not like this. This does not go over well. They actually have what's called the village protests. The Jamaican athletes outside of Merlene Adi almost protest against their own athletic committee to not participate in the games. The IOC has to come talk to Jamaica like, hey, get your fucking house in order. Get your people in line. Who you said is going to play is going to play. Sorry, you don't get to back out of this decision that you made now. And so under that cloud of controversy, Merlene Adi Page does make it to the finals of the 100 meter. She comes in fourth, though. Marion Jones, like, laps the field, relatively speaking, in 100 meter. And then it's a really tight cluster after that. She's right in the middle of that pack, but she does finish third in that pack, fourth overall. While she does then pick up a bronze with the 4 by 100 meter relay team, which again, that one she's on totally legitimately. She's even the anchor for it. So here in her sixth Olympics, at the age of 40, that does make her, at the time, the oldest Olympic medalist in track and field. What's even more is Marion Jones is later going to get banned for substance use. Her fourth place finish will get bumped up to third. So in 2000, she goes and she gets two more bronze medals, which makes her at the time the most decorated track and field female athlete in Olympic history without a single gold medal. Still a pretty nice trophy cabinet to have. It's a pretty nice trophy cabinet. And so, yeah, you look at all of her accomplishments. We mentioned she's the first ever Caribbean female Olympic medalist. She's the 13-time Jamaican Sportswoman of the Year. She is, even to this day, the record's been tied now, but she is the most awarded medalist in Olympic female track and field history. It's like she's got an enormous page of accomplishments. However, Merlin Nadi decides that she does 
have some more shit to prove. Ooh, Teresian. It is Teresian. Six is not enough. She wants to come back for a seventh Olympics. One thing she's not going to do, though, is compete for Jamaica. Now, she felt that Jamaica, as she entered her 40s, was trying to push her out of the sport a little bit. Uh, I do disagree with Merlene Adi a little bit here. They did use a loophole to get you into the Olympics at the age yeah, of 40. That, that seems a bit more about someone who's been a top athlete for most of their entire life, not wanting to pass the torch in any way, shape, or form. Who was it that said, I'm not here to... Ryan Tannehill talking about Malik Willis. Willis yeah. I'm not, I'm not here to help him learn. She decides she's not here to help the Jamaicans learn, but she could probably lead somewhere else to glory. You see, in 1998, she'd already gone to find a different coach recently, having kind of felt this estrangement from the Jamaican Amateur Athletic Association. She moved to Slovenia to work with a new coach, Sherdan Dordovic. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. So she's living in the capital city of Ljubljana. And in 2002, she just goes full hog and becomes a Slovenian citizen and starts competing internationally for the nation of Slovenia. That's a fun, that's a fun nation to pick. <laughs> so uh, in 2003, she makes her first finals for Slovenia in any international competition at the World Indoor Championships. And at the age of 43, she wins her 30th medal in major competition, placing third in the 60 meter at those World Indoor Championships. That is going to be enough to qualify her in 2004, at the age of 44, for her seventh consecutive Olympic appearance. A number that in track and field has only been exceeded by one person, a Spanish race walker named Jesus Angel Garcia. In 2004, she does even reach the semifinals, but her ride for Slovenia does end there as she misses the finals by 0.03 seconds. That is going to end up being her final Olympic appearance. She does miss qualification for the Slovenian team in 2008 by 0.28 seconds. She's really close at age 48 at making it to Beijing, but not quite. However, even though she can't make the Olympics, she does not stop competing for a little bit. She ends up still competing with Slovenian's 4x100 meter relay team all the way up until the Euro Championships in 2012 at age 52 two years after she'd already broken the record for oldest competitor at the age of 50 in 2010. Ridiculous. <laughs> that is her last year. Slovenia as a country is ranked 22nd, so Slovenia as a country doesn't even qualify for the 2012 Olympics. At the age of 52, she concludes a 34-year track and field career across five decades, two countries, seven Olympics, at least 13 covers of Jamaican sports publications. And along with Allison Felix, remains the most awarded medalist in track and field to this day. For this record, for all of her records, she's very often referred to as the queen of the track. But due to the makeup of those awards, she is also often referred to as the bronze queen. I, though, think that we can all agree, regardless of which of those nicknames you prefer, Queen Merlene is one hell of a <laughs> The only thing that I dislike is that she did win gold in something else. I wish she'd never won a gold in anything. Only bronze and silver. So across her 30 total, 15 of them are bronze, and nine of them are silver, and then six are gold. So even looking at all of her championships, like, yeah, you won a lot, but when we say one, you came in second and third a lot. How many bronzes equals a silver, and how many silvers equals a gold? So 
Well, if we're going by World of Warcraft rules, it's a 10 to 10 to 10 base logarithmic scale as you go up. <laughs> I always looked at it as like, like a gold is worth five points, a silver is worth three, and a bronze is worth one. So by my math, we would have a five to one ratio. And that's the kind of convoluted thinking that has led the U.S. to continue to think in years like 2008 and 2010 Winter Olympics that we come away as the top medal winners. But We pick whatever math know, works for us. We do whatever math works for us, and I'm sure Merlene Adi has done some of this math. I'm sure those golds don't eat away at her. Often the bridesmaid, but unfortunately at the Olympic level, despite a whole lot of bites at the apple, never the bride. I'm just floored by the fact that, like, so, like, I would expect, like, a power lifter would be able to compete into their 50s, maybe. But for a sprinter to compete into their 50s and not, like, have their hamstring involuntarily remove itself from the bone <laughs> is incredible to me. Like, you might not have retired, but I, the hamstring, am going to. Yeah, it's going to be a very thigh and calf dependent stride the rest of the way. That hamstring's not cooperating. Dude, I don't know. Whatever that manual that her mother got her when she was a child told her, it had something good to... We need to track that manual down. I could not get info on, like, who published it or anything like that, but this mythical manual that her mother bought for her during her childhood in Jamaica really made a difference, man. Love it, Merlene. I love her, but you know what? I think I've got room in my heart for yet one more guy tonight. If, uh, Xavier, you've got someone that you think we might be able to slide into that open heart hole? Yeah, I have someone, and... I will just preface this by saying Diaz will know this person. Diaz, if there's anything that you feel like you need to add, please feel free to do so. Do you remember Eric Snow? Do I remember Eric Snow? Are you fucking kidding me? Do I remember... Hold wait. Let me, let me go through the things of if I remember. Do I remember Eric Snow hitting the game ceiling jump shot with a screw in his foot because he broke it in game one of the 2001 NBA Finals? Of course I do. Do I remember Eric Snow being the starting point guard for LeBron's team in 07, the worst starting lineup in the history of the NBA Finals? Of course I do. Do I remember Eric Snow being so uninspired by early 2010 Sixers basketball that as the color commentator, he quite literally fell asleep during a broadcast and was called out by Mark Zumoff for doing so? Of course I remember this. Of course I remember Eric Snow, who is probably weighing about 300 pounds now. <laughs> I remember Eric Snow. I got to say, this is an ingenious strategy by you on like, as we record Black Friday, historically one of the laziest days of the year. You really just wanted to save your voice and let Diaz run the segment for you. Like, brilliant move on your part. I, I knew I would get at least a little bit of a uh, opening rant. But yeah, I want to talk about Eric Snow. So. Eric Snow was born April 24th, 1973 in Canton, Ohio, home of the NFL Hall of Fame. And fitting a place, hosting a sporting Hall of Fame, he was born into a sporting family. Eric's older brother, Percy, was a star linebacker at Michigan State. He was a consensus All-American and Butkus Award winner in 1989 and a member of the College Football Hall of Fame. He's also one of only five MSU players to ever have their number retired. This dude was apparently incredible and then got into a ATV accident after his rookie season and was never the same again. But Snow family, very talented when it comes to sports. So it's, it, we already kind of have like a Sterling Shannon situation here almost. Yes, but Eric doesn't follow his brother into football, but he did follow him to Michigan State. 
at Michigan State, he plays under Hall of Fame coach Judd Heathcote, who was the one you know who coached Michigan State during the Magic Johnson championship in '79, and actually played the last season under Heathcote. The season right before Tom Izzo, who had been an assistant coach there for 12 years, takes over and has been there ever since. During his senior season, 94-95, Snow averaged 10 points, 8 assists, and 3 boards. He was the offensive second fiddle to backcourt mate and consensus All-American Sean Respert, but made his name as a top defender, winning the Big Ten Defensive Player of the Year. He doesn't think he's going to be a professional basketball player, but Heathcote just says, there are teams that like what you do, just keep being you, you get a chance. So he just works hard on the defensive side of the ball. Spartans end the regular season 22-5, and second in the Big Ten. And that's good enough for them to be ranked number nine in the AP poll, and they get a three seed in the NCAA tournament. Fortunately, they do then suffer one of the biggest ever tourney upsets at the time, losing to 14 seed Weber State, 79-72. Yes, Weber State did exist before Damian Lillard. I thought they just came out onto the map whenever Damian Lillard was born, so, you know. That they sprung from his head, fully formed, like Athena from the Skull of Zeus. Yes. What's what's disappointing about that score, too, is it's like they didn't even need to, like, hit a clutch shot at the end. No, they just, like, kind of, like, beat your ass a little bit. By Weber State, a place that no one knows where it actually exists. I bet 95% of people could not tell you what state Weber State was actually in. 95 draft. Snow does get drafted. Number 43 overall. In between two guys who'd never play a single second in the NBA. Second round was just as useless back then as it is now. Well, what? just like the second round in the NBA is like relatively useless. And we need to remember that the NBA draft used to have like eight fucking rounds. For, for what insane. reason? The people he was drafted in between are Donnie Boyce and Anthony Pell. Two people that they could be made up names. No one actually knows who those people are. He gets drafted number 43 overall by the Bucks, but then gets immediately traded to Seattle Supersonics for another made up name, Urelias Zukowskis, and a future second round pick. That sounds Lithuanian as fuck. It is indeed Lithuanian, so good, good work on that. I know my Eastern Europeans. After a strong training camp, Snow does actually get a contract and makes the Sonics team pretty much just a, you know, end of the bench rotation player his rookie season. But he does come off to average nine minutes off the bench whenever Gary Payton needed a breather. If you're a defensive minded point guard, it's a pretty good situation to uh, just watch Gary Payton every day do what he did. But yeah, even if it's just a couple minutes, he does get on the court for one of the best teams in the league. As Seattle goes 64-18, and 18, beats Sacramento, Houston, and Utah on their way to the NBA Finals, where they run into Michael Jordan and lose to the Bulls four games to two. After another season and a half, Snow's minutes start declining and essentially falls out of the rotation. So, on January 18th, 1998, he gets traded to the Philadelphia 76ers for eight Second round pick. The idea originally was for him to be a defensive-minded backup to Allen Iverson, but Larry Brown, after seeing him for a couple games after the trade, decided that he could play these two together, convert him to a starter. So he had the point guard who doesn't score and the shooting guard who only scores. See how that works. And uh, it worked pretty well. He gets named a team captain 
and is a key member of the Sixers team that goes to the 2001 NBA Finals. He does have a stress fracture in his right ankle and still averages 13 points, four boards, and six assists during the Finals. They do lose to the Lakers, but at least you got the one win in the step over of Ty Lue. I'm sure that's still a formative memory for young Justin Diaz. Well, again, like I I'm, I just want to reiterate what I said at the open. Iverson has the step over, but people don't remember. Kobe came right back down and hit an 18-foot jumper over Rajah Bell. So it came back down and it was like, okay, the Sixers are up two. If they don't score here, we're probably going to fucking lose. And they like ball deny Iverson for the first 20 seconds. Finally, Eric Snow's like, I guess I need to shoot this. And just puts up a fucking 18-foot running jumper that had no business going in. And it hit nothing but the bottom of the net. Marv Albert was more surprised that Eric Snow hit that jumper than he was that Iverson stepped over to Ron Lou. If you listen to it back. Like he had like that slight delay in his call where like, you know, when an announcer pauses for like a half beat because they're very clearly looking at their sheet to see who it was that actually did that. It was like a running jumper by Eric Snow. (laughs) (laughs) So despite the Sixers loss there, breaking the heart of young Justin Diaz, Snow's reputation as a defensive stopper continued to improve. The following season, when asked about who defends him the best in the league, Kobe Bryant said, quote, I would say Eric Snow. He's very intelligent. He also gave a shout out to McKee, but he said that Eric Snow was the best person in the league to defend him, which I praise because at that point, everyone was trying to think of how to stop Kobe. 0203, he has his best individual season. He averages 13 points, four boards, seven assists, two steals, and makes second team all defense. This is the only individual honor he will ever get. But, you know, second team all defense feels right as the one thing to celebrate Eric Snow for. That's not bad for a bastard from the North. <laughs> After the 0304 season, Snow does get traded away from his adopted, uh, adopted Philadelphia hometown to the Cleveland Cavaliers for Kevin Ollie and Kedrick Brown. I love Kevin, Kevin Ollie sightings. I forgot that Kevin Ollie had a second stint with the Sixers. He was on, I want to say, that 0-1 team as well as, like, the, the third-string point guard. Wow, has anybody ever fallen off harder quicker in college basketball coaching ranks than Kevin Ollie? Like, he went from national champion to out within, like, three seasons. At least we got to see him win a national championship. We did. No, that was really cool and definitely worth spending 26 consecutive hours in the car with you and Mahan. <laughs> And I think he did get the bag eventually. I think they did have to pay him out, right? Oh, absolutely. They did. They did, yes. He got his money, at least. Now in Cleveland, no, starts off on the bench before working his way back up the rotation again. And eventually, he starts every game during the 05-06 season. Next season, back as a role player with the Cavs, led by Hall of Guy member Anderson Varejao and also LeBron James. Win the Eastern Conference. It's really the Anderson Barajow show. I, I do just want to acknowledge, I, I so appreciate that within these presentations, we have now had two teammates and two references to already Hall of Guy inductees. The universe continues to expand. With the Carol Frost-Scott Frost connection, we're only three degrees from Darren Erstad to Merlin Audi. We're right there. James, what happens in the finals in 2007? Oh, the Spurs beat the shit out of the Cavs. <laughs> that they do. The Spurs 
sweep the Cavs, which puts a bow on a rough record for Snow, appearing in the finals with all three teams he ever played for and losing all of them. Winning three combined games across three NBA finals. Getting to be in the finals with like the last three biggest faces of the NBA. You go Michael Jordan, you go Kobe, and then you go Tim Duncan. There are people who are going to flame you for that, but I'm just going to let that happen. You could have also gone other ways with that by saying he got to appear with LeBron. I'd put LeBron over Tim Duncan. I'd still put Tim Duncan over Kobe Bryant, but I know that many basketball players wouldn't, and they know ball better than I do. So I will defer to them. I just really wanted to slander LeBron just a touch there with that. No, that was really fine. It's fair enough. LeBron's anyway, missed the playoffs more times than Tim Duncan had seasons below 50 wins at this point. So that's fine. Very true. So, wins is a player stat. Somewhere Mina Kimes is just writhing right now. <laughs> so before the 07-08 season, Snow gets named co-captain of the Cavs. This is the second time he's co-captain of a team. First time he gets co-captain with Allen Iverson. Second time he's co-captain with LeBron James. The co part is really doing a lot of work here for Eric Snow. Co means equal. Eric Snow is equal. Yeah, that speaks a lot to Eric Snow's quality, I'll say. Like, if you're otherwise pretty well acknowledged as a role player and you're still being given, even just in name, equal leadership as Allen Iverson and LeBron James in terms of their importance to those particular franchises. Credit where credit is due. Eric Snow must be doing something right with his teammates. Eric Snow was always well-liked and did a lot for his teammates. He was a union rep for both the Sonics and the Sixers, and he was then the vice president of the NBPA for five years, working on CBAs. His teammates trusted him. There's a reason why he kept getting picked as captain. It's because everyone liked him, and he did a lot to try to better the lives of the players. So, you know, good on Eric Snow for that. The 0708, co captain with LeBron. Fortunately, due to some arthritic issues in his knees, only plays 22 games. They keep him on the roster for another season, but at this point, his career's done. So instead of releasing him, he's essentially an unofficial assistant coach for Mike Brown. He's running meetings, helping drawing up plays. He's getting paid as a player, but he's not playing any games because he just can't anymore. He makes the most of this learning season. Right after this, he moves into the analyst sphere uh, for NBA TV and Comcast while doing some coaching on the side before eventually linking up with his old coach, Larry Brown at SMU, where he becomes the director of player development. Allegedly, the only reason he did, well, I don't want to say the only reason he did TV stuff, but he couldn't become an assistant coach earlier because of some restrictions with his last Cavs contract, like something where... He could only have coached there and not somewhere else. It, it, it was very strange. That makes sense. Yeah. So there's a good chance, Diaz, that he fell asleep because he just didn't care and wanted to be a coach, but they wouldn't let him because of contract restrictions. No, I think he fell asleep because he was watching Andre Miller and Samuel Dallenbear run the pick and roll together. That's old man basketball right there. We, we can try and be nice, but like we've seen that Sixers team. It's completely understandable that he fell asleep. It was a team with a ceiling of 40 wins. <laughs> <laughs> so after this, he moves to FAU, where he becomes an assistant basketball coach for two seasons, and then to the Texas Legends in the G League, where he was assistant coach for five seasons. During the course of his collegiate career, professional career, and coaching career, Snow is never the guy, 
he's always just a guy. And he actually gets asked by ESPN about this. If it bothered him to be branded Iverson's, quote, supporting cast. And speaking for himself and the rest of the team, doesn't bother us at all. We understand this league, the marking this league, the star status in this league. You have to earn it. Iverson's earned it. He's earned the right to be called a star in the NBA because of the talent that he has. It doesn't bother me. And he reiterated this in a career retrospective when he was asked about playing with, again with AI and LeBron. And for me, it's awesome. To be able to say I played with those guys more than anything, to be able to say that I experienced some things with them that I know were good moments in their career. And I would like to think that in some way or another, I helped them. That's a good thing for me that in one way or another, I helped them do something. That's the kind of guy Eric Snow was. Always happy to be out of the spotlight, just trying to help everyone else do good things, whether it's college, whether it's on the court, whether it's union work off the court, assistant coaching, or charity work. He started a thing in Philly where every steal or assist he made, he would donate $20 to charity. So every single time, incentivized being a good teammate, it wasn't about buckets, it was about assists and steals. Also, really fun fact, he intentionally fouled Michael Jordan at the end of his last ever game during a Sixers blowout of the Wizards to let him take two final free throws and exit to a standing O. Diaz, I'm assuming you watched that game? I did, I did. And uh, my 10-year-old self eventually got over the fact that my dad did not buy us tickets to that game. Um, <laughs> no, I, I vividly remember that. It was, yeah, it was Eric Snow fouled Jordan. And then I think they, in return, fouled Eric Snow so that Jordan could get out of the game. Yeah. It was a be- Total, beautiful uh, moment. In the backcourt, nowhere near the hoop. They just wanted to give Jordan his moment. Funny, because he actually had guarded Jordan briefly during the finals. And Jordan allegedly said one time when Snow was guarding him, there's a little mouse on me. Someone passed me the ball. Turns out he held on to that for all those years. He's like, I've been nursing this grudge. He did somehow, Eric Snow did somehow end up with one of Jordan's shoes from the finals that he just auctioned off recently. So I guess like rookie Eric Snow was like, hey, 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 Jordan, I know you just kicked our ass. Can I have one of your shoes? And apparently Jordan said yes. So, you know, that that reminds me of like the 92 Dream Team when like the other countries would take pictures with the Dream Team right before they're about to get their ass kicked. Important to do that before so everyone can still kind of have smiles. The Cuban national team, I think, is who specifically did that. I would do that, and then if I lost by 100, I'd be like, great game, guys. Great game. I would then get them to sign the picture after. That's all I would do. (laughs) There's definitely a margin where it becomes so much of a blowout that you're no longer upset by it. There's a bell curve where maybe if it's within 20, you kind of care and you'd be a little upset. And then past, they're like, yeah, what the fuck do you expect from playing the U.S. Dream Team? Yeah, lose by 1 to 5, it's funny. 6 to 20, it's annoying. More than 20, it gets funny again. Well, sounds like, if nothing else, a very classy guy with that final move for the end of Jordan's career. But is his career good enough to make our induction class? That's the real question. We find ourselves presented with with a conundrum with these three. I'll admit that, to Eric Snow's credit, with our man Tunyon, in one of his realms, he's quite successful, getting elections twice. And while Merlinati did come up short, and I'll remind you, seven different Olympics as one of the top ranked runners in the world. As you point out, she won several 
maybe not several, but she won some golds in the World Championships and the World Indoor Championships. So if we're going by the most direct definition, Eric Snow is right there. And Diaz, you clearly have some affinity for him. Well, I do have affinity for Eric Snow. And the other thing that's clear from Xavier's presentation is that his teammates have an affinity for Eric Snow. And I think when the margins are this close, I'm, I'm going to modify a quote. We all know game recognizes game. Guy recognizes guy. The fact that two separate teams of his said, okay, the face of the league is going to be our one captain. And Eric Snow is going to be his co-captain. That speaks volumes to me. Uh, it really now, does. Counter-argument, we have just pointed out something that he did win twice during his career, which were elections as co-captains of these teams. So, hmm, he wins respect. Much, much, to consider, much to consider here. I don't know if that gives you a medal on your wall or a congressional pension, but I do appreciate the uh, <laughs> considering it a win. It's between Adi and Snow for me, and I do think I still lean Adi just because it's like she got upset as it's like number three Michigan State losing to number 14 Weber. Maybe not all seven times she's that favored, but several of those seven, she is one of the top ranked runners in the world. I am also between Snow and Adi, and I like Snow a lot. I like Adi for the sheer arrogance of, yeah, they kind of ached an injury to get me back into the Olympics and then I still feel they didn't do enough for me so I'm going to go compete for Slovenia instead. Like just that one thing. I like Eric Snow a whole lot so I could go either way so I think it's up to Diaz because James you and I could both go for either of those two. I mean if you're leaving it up to me I'm going with the guy that made the shot to clinch one of the greatest wins of my childhood. I'm just going to reasonable it it may not be unanimous this time but i don't think that's a, a decision that the guy bunal will have any trouble stomaching by any i will means. also say that it does kind of skew closest to the original idea of this where when i said do you remember eric snow diaz went on a 30 second rant he best fits the category i think you know merlin does have enough other success that that it might negate some of those heartbreaks in the olympics and i can also you know, satisfy myself knowing that she's got chances down the road. Eric Snow, I think, feels like the right choice for this week. Yes, would you like to do the honors then? It is this guy Bunel's great privilege in a difficult decision in a loaded class for episode one of season five to consider this trifecta of guys to be before us. However, there's only one guy who hit a 15-foot jump shot in Game 1 of the 2001 NBA Finals. There was only one guy who was the co-captain with Allen Iverson. There was only one guy who was co-captain with LeBron James. And there was only one guy who fell asleep while on the call for an NBA basketball game. And that is Hall of Guy inductee Eric Snow. Welcome to the Hall of Guy. Congratulations, Eric Snow. I thought for a second you were going to say there was only one guy that fell asleep during a broadcast of a Sixers game. We might have to go back and check the tape on that. I'm not <laughs> sure if we can say that was only one. But on the call, that you've probably got. On the call. I mean, of these three at least, I don't think John Runyon or, uh, or Merlene fell asleep while on air for anything. I don't think so. 
congratulations to Eric Snow and congratulations to you listener for getting through another episode with us as we enter yet another time this episode, our fifth season. We're so excited to be doing it again. Another happy belated birthday when you listen to this to our good friend Justin Diaz, who uh, this Sunday is celebrating. Hopefully the Eagles give him a little something to celebrate about. But until then, anything else you guys be watching? What What's the next big World Cup game? Other than U.S.-Iran, what's the one game that everyone needs to have watched when they hear this? Saudi Arabia, or no, uh, Argentina-Mexico. Argentina-Mexico. Ooh, that's a tough one for me. My picks are going against one another. I mean, Argentina needs to win. Basically, they don't. Yeah. If they, if they even tie. They're like kind of fucked. Yeah, they're in real bad shape. So, Argentina, Mexico. That is tomorrow for us. Saturday for the listeners, and that's the two p.m. game. So, the easiest for everyone who doesn't wake up at five a.m. like myself to watch. So, definitely Argentina, Mexico. People might also enjoy the Canada Croatia game on Sunday, just because Canada's coach after the loss to Belgium, where they played really well, but then lost. Said we need to f Croatia, and then so Croatia's largest newspaper did have a full cover. It took some umbrage with that. That was a picture somehow of him naked, but with maple leaves covering his genitals and mouth, saying, "You know, you used your tongue, but do you have the balls to back it up?" Essentially, and I love that he definitely didn't mean anything by it of like anything against Croatia. It's just. They had played so well against Belgium and lost. They really needed to get back in it, so he just wanted to rile up his team. Instead, pissed off the entire nation of Croatia. That'll be fun to see, you know, a game that should have been, you know, regular. You know, every game is big at the World Cup, but just something normal. Like, you wouldn't expect any bad blood between them. And now it's a death match, so that'll be fun. Tempers will be flaring. Balls will be flying. Yeah, I mean, all we need to do to get through the group stage is beat the country that arguably hates us the most in the entire world. So that's a super easy task for us. There's a lot of countries that hate us. <laughs> There's a lot of countries that hate us, but Iran's got to be pretty up there. I'm not even disagreeing with their reasons for that hatred necessarily. Worst case, they are the, the Merlin of hating USA. Yeah, they'll keep at it for a long time, whether or not they're number one. And we hope you guys keep at it, listening to us. I think that's all we've got for this week. I've been your host, James. Please check for bike lanes before making right-hand turns. I've been the very special guest, Xavier. And I'm Diaz. And as Eric Snow once said while on the call, sometimes it makes you a little sleepy. People talking in the huddle and you're like, blah, blah, blah. And then the game starts and you're like, okay, it's time to go. <laughs> <laughs>